It's Thursday, November 5th. I'm Martine Powers. This is an election update from Post Reports. So how many lawsuits are out there right now that you are actively trying to pay attention to? Too many to know the exact number. (laughs) But quite a few and in a bunch of different states. We just received a statement from the Trump campaign about the newest actions, the legal actions they're taking. There are suits in... He filed a lawsuit in Michigan, a state where... Michigan. He's also filed multiple lawsuits in Pennsylvania to try and stop ballots from being counted there. Georgia, Pennsylvania. And that is what's happening... Nevada. ...in the state of Nevada. They're coming up because the election's really close, and it's being decided before our eyes right now in the margins. And so every single vote could matter, and both campaigns know that, and so they're fighting. I'm Amy Gardner, and I'm a national political reporter at The Post covering voting issues. So these are lawsuits about the counting of ballots in these battleground states. Can you walk me through some of the details of what is actually being argued and why there are all these lawsuits that are popping up right now? I'll give you a couple of examples of some of the suits that we're tracking. There was a a suit actually just decided quite quickly this morning in Georgia where the Trump campaign sued election officials in Chatham County, which is where Savannah is. And they claimed that a Republican poll watcher had seen election officials take 53 ballots that had not been processed Hmm. and mingle them with ballots that had been processed and that then they were going to get counted without knowing whether they were legal ballots that had been received before the deadline of 7 p.m. Tuesday night. And it was kind of interesting because even last night when this lawsuit came in and I was reading it and writing it up for the Post, I didn't see any evidence in the lawsuit that the ballots had come in after 7 p.m., but that was clearly what the campaign was alleging, and they were claiming that their rights were potentially going to be violated because of the counting of not-eligible ballots, and that would dilute their own campaign's votes, and so on and so on. But, But you said that this has now been dismissed. It wasn't exactly dismissed. So this morning in court, the poll watcher whose affidavit was the foundation of this lawsuit testifies that he has no idea when these ballots actually arrived. And the (laughs) election officials say they arrived before the deadline. And the judge, as a result of that, denied a request by the Trump legal team for emergency action. So you have a lot of stuff getting thrown up at the wall to see what sticks. In Pennsylvania, another example, the Trump campaign claimed that they weren't being allowed to monitor counting uh, sufficiently close enough to see what was actually going on. And and this is a, a common practice, right, that usually when you have people who are counting these ballots, that you also have people from the campaigns who get to sort of stand somewhat close to them and just watch to make sure that what they're doing is what they're actually supposed to be doing. Absolutely. Every campaign or ballot initiative or party is allowed to have an observer in 
the polling locations, but there are rules about where they can stand and what they can do. And so the Trump campaign argued that they weren't actually being allowed to watch the counting and they wanted to. So what's interesting about that case is that the Trump campaign is alleging that laws are being broken, votes are being stolen, fraud is happening. Trump has said multiple times since Tuesday that Democrats are finding votes and throwing them in the hopper. And I mean, the counting facility in Philadelphia has a live stream video that we've all been watching. Wired Magazine wrote a piece about it. Like everybody needs to watch this right now because there's nothing else better to do. And it's, it's like <laughs> watching paint dry, you know, men and women in yellow safety vests with gloves on their hands and looking at paper ballots. And But they're not hiding anything. Mm-hmm. And it's not being run by partisans of the campaigns. And so Trump won that suit, but I'm not sure what it actually changes. What it might change is public perceptions. And it's unfortunate that there's as much misinformation flying out there as there is about the integrity of our elections, because I believe strongly that the election officials across the country, particularly the local election officials, are the unsung heroes of this. Hmm. But I think that the examples that you've outlined and the fact that those examples really lack any substantive evidence of any wrongdoing or fraud in the of these ballots, it speaks to this larger question of what is the point of filing all these lawsuits and and having all these legal attacks on the counting process if they are, in most cases, seem to be destined to be dismissed or to fail in court. But as you say, it, it seems like the one goal is to create an aura of concerns, of conspiracy theories, of an appearance of, of wrongdoing to people who would believe that. I think that's true, although I also think that there is another category of suits where it's a little bit different. And I'll give you a good example. Also in Pennsylvania, the Trump campaign is trying to block the counting of ballots that arrive after Election Day. And you have some dueling legal principles. On the one hand, the Constitution and the Supreme Court backs this up in lots of precedent, says that the state legislatures are the ones with the power to write election laws for the states. And Hmm. the state law in Pennsylvania says that the deadline is election day. And the Secretary of State wanted to push that deadline back because of the pandemic, because of the concerns about the U.S. Postal Service. And a lower court judge let her. There is a legal argument that that was improper. There are competing legal principles there too, though, which is that There's something called the reliance interest principle in these kinds of cases. And what that means is that uh, Americans are allowed to rely on information that they're given by their government about what's legal and proper. So if, if Pennsylvania voters relied on the guidance that they got from their secretary of state that, you know, it had to be postmarked by election day, but if their ballot could arrive after the election, hmm. there's a very strong set of precedent decisions that would support counting those ballots. I also want to talk briefly about Wisconsin. The Trump campaign has said that they plan to ask for a recount there. How would a recount actually work? And if that does happen, to what extent would that delay us actually knowing who the president is going to be? There's a couple things to say about the potential for a recount in Wisconsin. One is that the Trump campaign would have to pay for it, and you have to pay up front, which is really funny because the Trump campaign actually has a strong record of not paying its bills. I mean, it still hasn't paid for some of the rallies that it held in city 
facilities from 2016. Um, hmm. And so if there's a certain cheapness that prevails that we've known to characterize this campaign <laughs> in past instances, they might not be willing to spend the money. And if I think it's like something between a million and a half and three million bucks to pay for a recount in Wisconsin. So that's one really interesting and slightly funny aspect of this. The other piece of it is that a 30,000 vote margin is really, really hard to change with a recount. And we've got Republicans and Democrats on record saying so. Scott Walker was one of the first people, the former governor, Republican, big Trump supporter in Wisconsin to say, I just don't see a recount changing this outcome. But then again, why do it? If it's not going to change the outcome, if it costs a lot of money, why ask for a recount? I mean, I think we should watch and see if he does. He has threatened a recount, which, as we've been discussing already, is enough in some ways if his real goal is just to sow mistrust. And you've already seen how much that sense of mistrust has taken hold, even when you look at some of the altercations, protests that have happened outside of the places where they're counting some of these ballots. Do you have people who are really getting in the faces of election officials? And I I think it's already clear that that sense that fraud is happening, that some of these counts are completely misaccurate, that, that that false sense has really taken hold. I think that's exactly right. I have no doubt that some significant share of the people who are forming this crowd outside last night of the counting facility in Detroit, in Maricopa County where Phoenix is, really believe that laws are being broken inside of those facilities. And that's so upsetting for democracy because it's it's not true. There's no evidence that it's true. I also believe that there is some proportion of those crowds that's more cynical. We know that there are Proud Boys who are in the crowd in Philadelphia, for instance, and that's a, a group with a track record of violence and white supremacist behavior with the apparent goal of creating chaos as opposed to, you know, seeking solutions. We are watching in real time a critical moment for American democracy. The president is sending people out like Pam Bondi, the former attorney general of Florida, a member of his impeachment team, Rudy Giuliani, the former New York mayor, to go to places like Philadelphia and allege voter fraud, even though there is no evidence of voter fraud. And so it's creating in social media circles on the right and in different areas real questions about the election, yet on the reporting level, those questions don't exist. I'm Bob Costa, a national political reporter at The Washington Post. And the 
fact that you have so many voters who believe President Trump and believe this notion that there is some type of wrongdoing or fraud going on, I think it dispels any idea that we were going to come out of this election as a more united country, that the divisions that exist, not just in in terms of who people vote for, but how they understand like the reality of the country, that those divides are as present as ever. They really are. And when my colleague Phil Rucker and I decided this week to step back from the election and think about what we saw, what it all means, we decided to write a story about those deeper divides. And we begin the story by looking at Wisconsin because Vice President Biden didn't actually flip many counties that President Trump won, that President Obama also won. So those Trump-Obama counties remained pretty much Trump counties in many places. What Biden did to pull ahead in the popular vote to be in a position to be president-elect is to stoke the traditional Democratic turnout in urban areas and to eat into Republican support in the suburbs. And so that means when you look at a state like Wisconsin or a state like Pennsylvania or other battlegrounds, Arizona, Nevada, Florida, you see Vice President Biden doing better than Democrats have done previously in the cities, but the rural and exurban areas of this country remain Trump country in many respects. And I think that's such an important point because you look at a state like Wisconsin, the fact that Trump won it by a few tens of thousands of votes, that it looks like a somewhat similar margin, at least right now, for Biden, and that you can compare those two situations or think that they're the same. But what you're saying is that even though it is similar in terms of the ultimate disparity in the count of votes, that because those votes are coming from completely different places, it actually represents a much more stark polarity in the kind of political makeup of the state. Cornell Belcher, a Democratic pollster, told Phil Rucker and I this week that when you think about this election and why that all plays out, like you just detailed, Martine, it's because issues aren't really driving discussions and debates anymore. It's not so much about the economy or the pandemic. Those are important. But what fundamentally drives people now in American politics is tribalism, Belcher said. And that tribalism was reflected across the political map on Tuesday. And it's reflected in the makeup of Congress, which has real consequences for the functioning of government and the survival of a common set of values or even truth if everyone's coming from a totally different vantage. And I think that's important to remember in the weeks and months going forward, that in a world where Biden is president, it's not going to be easy to bridge that partisanship that we've seen over the last four years, one argues over the last decade, that many of the problems are still going to be in place. And this idea that Biden could be this unifying president, could be this moderate Democrat that could bring Republicans to the table, that becomes more difficult to imagine. And we saw from Vice President Biden earlier in the week in a speech in Delaware, an attempt to cast himself as a president, potentially for all Americans. So let me be clear. I, we are campaigning as a Democrat, but I will govern as an American president. So you see in Biden, this lifer in the Senate, then a vice president in the Obama administration, someone who has a lot of experience in Washington, knows Republicans well. He's not like 
President Trump or Jimmy Carter, these outsider presidents coming into Washington. He knows Washington. He knows how to make it work. He was a, a deal maker during the Obama years, cut deals with Mitch McConnell on the budget. I covered those fights for the mm-hmm. Washington Post. But I just keep thinking about a quote I heard yesterday from Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat of Connecticut. And he said, Bob, history doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes. And mm-hmm. what he meant was, when he looks to 2021, he said, I don't want to be, quote, Pollyannish, but he's hopeful that maybe if Trump's off the scene, things can work. But he also knows that in 2009, the Tea Party movement rose during Barack Obama's first year in the White House. And you could see a populist revolt in conservative circles once again under a president, Biden, especially because Republicans did better than expected in the House and in the Senate. I think it's notable to think about the speech that Mitch McConnell gave on Tuesday night, his victory speech, that brought up this idea of of socialism, that, you know, we want to make sure that our country's economy isn't veering towards socialism. Kentucky wants more of the policies that built the best economy in modern history, not socialism that would stifle prosperity and hurt workers. And just the language that he used, I think, gave early indications that his plan going forward if Biden is president, is to basically paint him as a radical, to paint Democrats as radicals, and that he has no intention of pursuing any bipartisanship in the next few years. McConnell is someone who has pursued bipartisanship at times when it comes to budget deals, but on almost every other front. He is an entrenched partisan warrior. And Democrats remember well how he opposed the consideration of Merrick Garland's nomination for the Supreme Court in 2016, how he said one of his goals was to defeat uh, President Obama early in the Obama years. And the socialism tag is a warning shot to Vice President Biden should he become president. And McConnell's saying with that kind of statement, he knows Biden's not a socialist, but he's saying if you try to move left with your cabinet nominations, your Supreme Court nominations, we're going to paint the Democrats as socialists. We're going to put in a fight. And so it means Biden may have to nominate some more centrist people for different positions if he wants to have a smoother sailing experience in the Senate. Uh, But Biden's under a lot of pressure to make sure liberals are included in his cabinet and are part of his agenda. Many Democrats say, we came out for you, Vice President Biden. We didn't love you. We're not big fans. We wanted Senator Sanders or Senator Warren or someone else. And we came behind you and we expect to be taken seriously in your administration. I spoke to Pramila Jayapal this week, co-chair of the Progressive Caucus in the House. And she said she wants to see progressives at the table. And she's not totally enthusiastic about the idea of having uh, lots of Republicans in the cabinet. So what is Biden's path toward healing this divide if he is president? Well, he can just be Joe Biden. On Tuesday night, I was struck by his speech because he seemed to be more Democrat Joe Biden saying we're on path to victory. People were honking their horns in Delaware. I'm here to tell you tonight, we believe we're on track to win this election. And then a few hours later on Wednesday afternoon, we saw a different side of Joe Biden, which was that kind of presidential Joe Biden. I'm a president for all Americans. But this will not be my victory alone or our victory alone. It'll be a victory for the American people, for our democracy, for America. I think the Wednesday speech by Biden is perhaps more reflective of how he will govern. Hmm. Election night was politically charged. 
But people around Biden tell me, based on my conversations with them, that he does believe the nation needs to heal. He entered this campaign back in 2019 because of Charlottesville, and he saw the racial divide in this country, and that's been a motivating factor. But he is someone who's of an older generation, and the question I just keep having as a reporter is, can he keep the left in step with him if he's president of the United States? And will Republicans actually want to work with him? Because they may look ahead to 2022, 2024 and say, there's no benefit politically to working with a President Biden if he's seen as weak. And that's mm-hmm. part of the problem for Biden if the Electoral College remains narrow uh, and it's a, it's a close victory. There will be GOP questions about whether he has a mandate or the extent of his mandate. And I think that feels like one of the big takeaways when you think about the the winners and losers of this election. And, and of course, we're still counting. But but I think for a lot of Democrats, there was the goal of winning the presidency. And then there was the goal of winning the presidency in a way that's, that repudiates Trump, Trump supporters, Trumpism, that gives this mandate of let's bring the country together. And I think that whatever the final electoral count is, it is clear that that mandate is not there, that this goal of a sense that the majority of the country wants to come together, that that feels even further away now than it did before the election. You see, Democrats were hoping for years, not just over the past week, but for years to repudiate not only President Trump, but Trumpism, as you said, the forces that surround this president, uh, the conspiracy theories that have infused themselves into American politics, the darker elements, the racism that's risen in parts of the country. Many Democrats wanted to see that expunged, and you can expunge it, they told me, by having a landslide victory. But White voters in many parts of this country came out in droves, in the suburbs, in the rural areas, and they said, we stand with President Trump. Some black voters did too, and Latino voters in many pockets uh, moved in a, in a bigger way to President Trump than Democrats would have expected or hoped. And that tells you that Trumpism is here to stay. It may take a different form, a different incarnation, especially as 2024 approaches. But President Trump, even if defeated, I'm told by some of his allies, could think about running for president again in 2024. So he's not some kind of cloud that will disappear. He is a political force in in a central way in the GOP now and likely in the future. Amy Gardner and Robert Costa are national political reporters for The Post. And now, one more thing about why gridlock in Washington looks good on Wall Street. A week ago, it was a bit of a grim feeling on Wall Street about this notion of a blue wave. Stocks were falling. There was a lot of concern about higher taxes and a lot more regulation. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. All of that pretty much is off the table or severely tamped down. Stocks have just been up, 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 both in the United States and in many markets around the world. A lot of people are scratching their heads trying to understand why this is happening. By Wednesday morning, Wall Street started pricing in a Biden presidency and a Republican-controlled Senate. That outcome, a Democratic president and a split Congress, have historically yielded the highest returns for the market. 
you called any business leader in the last week, all they wanted to talk to you about was their fear that Biden was going to raise taxes in 2021 on the business community and obviously on the rich. And that's basically off the table now. If the Republicans stay in control of the Senate, they're not going to approve a tax increase. Similarly, there was a lot of concern about the regulatory environment. President Trump made a big issue on what would happen with the energy industry in the United States, especially fracking, or what would happen to healthcare. You know, Biden campaigned on some big changes to healthcare in the United States, having some sort of government program, expanding it and having it compete with the private sector. Those options are pretty much off the table now, and you can see it in how Wall Street is repricing. For the half of America that has money in the stock market, this is feeling pretty good to see this rally and to see a more optimism on Wall Street. But as we've said on this program before, the economy is not the stock market. And the economy is still in a recession, a pretty deep recession. We have coronavirus cases rising. We have 21.5 million Americans still on unemployment aid, which has decreased in recent weeks. And we have, at the end of the year, a lot of protections for student loan holders and renters facing evictions. A lot of that's going away when the new year hits. So there's still a lot of anxiety and a lot of trouble in the economy. And whoever ultimately gets sworn in in January is going to have to face, what do we do next? Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. That's it for this segment of Post Reports. Full episodes of our show come out every weekday afternoon. You can subscribe at postreports.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. Thanks for listening.